Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Congresswoman Judy Chu. Congresswoman Chu represents the 27th Congressional District, which is located in Southern California. She was elected in 2009 and became the first Chinese-American woman ever elected to Congress. Representative Chu serves on the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, which controls legislation regarding taxes, revenues, Social Security, and Medicare. In that committee, Representative Chu is a member of the subcommittees on health, giving her oversight over health care reform and crucial safety net programs, among others. She also serves on the House Small Business Committee, which has oversight of the Small Business Administration, as well as the House Budget Committee. She is also chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Congresswoman Chu, what a pleasure. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to start with something that I know you feel very passionately about, and that's reproductive rights. The Supreme Court ruled that there is no constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion. And we've talked about the legal and political implications of the decision a great deal on the podcast. I know this is hardly news to you because you were arrested for protesting the court's decision last month. Before we get into your proposed bill, Could you talk to us about why you decided to march that day, knowing that you might be arrested? When I heard the Dobbs decision being announced, I knew it was coming, but it was so outrageous, so heartbreaking to have it actually here. And I thought about the fact that women's rights would be rolled back 50 years, that young women would have less rights than their grandmothers. I thought about the 13-year-old who would be the victim of incest, but might not have the money to go to another state to have an abortion, or the woman with the ectopic pregnancy who needs care right away to save her life, who might not have the time to go to another state, or the woman who already has three kids and knows she cannot afford another. I thought about all these women in the 26 states, the 38 million women in those states who would have their rights taken away. And that's why I had to be out there with the hundreds of other women. Actually, 181 of us got arrested that day. And it was very inspirational to be with these women all ages, all backgrounds who were there to say, we will not go back. And I know many of us saw footage and heard audio of you on that day. I saw footage of you talking to the other 180 people. I think you were the only member of Congress to be arrested that day. And it's certainly a strong message to send that you're willing to not just sponsor legislation, but actually be part of the protest. And I do want to move on to that legislation, and I want to talk about your bill, the Women's Health Protection Act. I know you're the lead sponsor. I know you've talked about it a lot, but can you tell us in broad terms what the act would do? It was back in 2013 when we saw that there were so many states that were passing laws to chip away at abortion 
laws dictating the width of clinic doors or saying that a doctor had to have admitting privileges in a nearby hospital, all of which are unnecessary for an abortion to be done. And so it became clear that we could not just have legal challenges to each of these laws, even though the reproductive rights community was indeed challenging them in the courts, it became like whack-a-mole. And so what we needed was a bill that would definitively protect our rights to an abortion. It enshrines the protections of Roe versus Wade into law. It allows providers to provide and patients to receive abortion care in every state of this country. And it also stops states from eroding those rights. Now, before we get to what could happen in the Senate, I wanted to ask, do you think that the bill could actually be challenged and in our current climate and with our current court, is there a chance that a national protection for reproductive rights could potentially be overturned by the court? Well, this was a bill that had the input of many, including many constitutional attorneys. They did base the bill on the 14th Amendment and the Commerce Clause. They felt that it would stand on constitutional grounds. However, we see that this is a court that is not respecting the 14th Amendment. And I do fear not only this law being struck down, should it pass, but also all the other provisions that protect us that could be struck down, such as contraception, same-sex marriage, the right to love who you want, even interracial marriage. I want to get to those other issues as well. And I know you've been saying this doesn't end with abortion. And I agree, if you look at the court's reasoning, this doesn't end with abortion. And I do teach constitutional law. And for my two cents, I do think that a bill that would codify Roe v. Wade in some form does stand up to challenge. I do think that that stands on strong footing under the Commerce Clause. But that's not, of course, the real challenge I think that this bill faces. And I suspect that many of us think that this could die or will die in the Senate. And is this just another reason to eliminate the filibuster? In fact, it's essential to eliminate the filibuster. The filibuster is an archaic process which requires 60 votes, not the majority, which should be 50 votes, in order to pass a bill. It is tyranny of the minority. Basically, 10 senators can hold up any bill, which is why an enormous number of bills have been held up in the Senate. And I think it should be eliminated. This is a democracy. This is the rule of the majority. Now, I like to make a point to tell people that actually we have 48 senators who are willing to eliminate the filibuster. We need to have two more. And um, there are two senatorial candidates who have said that they would be willing to eliminate the filibuster and also vote for the Women's Health Protection Act, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. 
if there are any others, I would be really happy to support them. But this is the concrete solution, getting two more senators elected who will change the circumstances in the Senate. And then we can get this bill passed and signed into law. Another example, of course, of elections matter, and it really matters who's in the Senate. And I do think that's worth emphasizing that ending the filibuster does have the support of the vast, vast majority of, at this point, Democrats. And it brings up, as we talked about, the idea that elections matter so deeply. And I'm actually thinking of the flip side of your bill, which is, if I could ask you, are you concerned that if Republicans end up controlling both houses of Congress and eventually the White House, do you think it's foreseeable that we would see not a protection of Roe v. Wade, but a national ban on abortion? It is, in fact, what so many on the Republican side want to do. They have actually expressed that they want to have a national ban on abortion. And they want to criminalize doctors who perform abortions and criminalize patients who seek abortions and stop patients from being able to cross state lines, which should be constitutional under our laws. So yes, it will get very, very extreme if Republicans are able to take back the House and the Senate. As it stands, and as you mentioned, this isn't just about abortion. If you look at the rationale behind the Dobbs decision, something that we've been talking about a lot over the last few months, the rationale really doesn't confine itself to abortion, even though the majority says this is just about abortion. And I know you've been supportive, for instance, of the Right to Contraception Act. I know you tweeted recently, unelected judges have already come for our reproductive rights, and it's clear they don't intend to stop there. I'm proud to support the Respect for Marriage Act, moving us closer towards enshrining the right to marry the person you love under federal law. Could you update us on the Respect for Marriage Act? It actually seems, to my surprise, like unlike the proposal to protect reproductive rights, that this actually might pass in the Senate. I was heartened to see that there were 47 Republicans in the House that voted for it. That was good, except, of course, there were over 100 Republicans that voted against it, even though this is the law of the land right now. Nonetheless, it says that there could be 10 votes on the Senate side that could allow for this bill to pass, even with the filibuster. And that is a major step forward. I would like to point out that because of the redistricting that happened, I saw a very significant change in some of these Republicans who voted for it, who are now in swing states, who then cast their vote for this bill, even though they would not have done so at any other time. That's the change. And the pressure. So I was just going to ask you about that, that it was not a straight party line vote in the House, that there were actually some Republicans who voted in favor of this bill. Again, we're talking about the Respect for Marriage Act. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you said it's about redistricting and competitive races. And I was also 
wondering if you think it's partly because of where we are as a country and even in, let's say, a very conservative district, is it just not palatable to say anymore, I think that marriage should be restricted to a man and a woman? From what I heard, the reporting is that people who voted against it didn't explicitly say, I don't want to protect the right to marry for everyone. They just said, there are other more important things. Let's just move on. Yes, it was not very convincing for them to say that. But uh, I would say those Republicans that voted for it had various reasons. I know that there are increasing numbers of Republicans that have relatives and friends that are in same-sex marriages that do have LGBT constituents in their communities that are outspoken. But I would have to say that some of the notable surprises in the Respect for Marriage vote were from some who actually were very, very conservative, but now find themselves in districts that lean very strongly Democrat. And so, yeah, they've changed their tune. Another really important outgrowth of redistricting, and of course, there's very important decisions coming up in the Supreme Court regarding redistricting and who has the ultimate say. And I I would love to talk to you more about that, but I do want to move on to something else that I know is so important to you, which is gun control. And I saw that you tweeted a few days ago, of course, the number sadly has gone up since then. You tweeted over 400 mass shootings alone in 2022. The number is astonishing, but the number of lives lost and families ripped apart is even more devastating. The gun safety bill recently signed into law was a start, but it cannot be the end of our efforts in Congress. So Congresswoman Chu, I think the next answer would be, what is next? And what is next in light of how this conservative court interprets the Second Amendment? Well, that is a very worrisome issue in terms of what the Supreme Court would do to the bills that we passed. Nonetheless, there are some very, very important bills that we have already passed out of the House that would save lives. H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, which would extend the universal background checks for anybody, whether they are at a gun show or buying a gun on the internet. And then there's the Enhanced Background Checks Act, which would close the Charleston loophole. That loophole allowed a young man to just get a gun, even though there wasn't any answer that had come back. But the default is, well, if the answer hasn't come back, that young man or any man can get that gun. He wouldn't have got the gun if the background check results had come back. And of course, we have to raise the age of buying a semi-automatic weapon from 18 to 21 years old. Anyway, these have all passed the House. We need to pass the Senate. But actually, this brings us to the same problem that we've had before, which is this filibuster issue. If we did eliminate the filibuster, we would be able to get these passed, and so many people would be so much safer in this country. I think it's worth emphasizing, as you just did, that we would be in a very different country if we did, in fact, eliminate the filibuster. I think people are 
surprised and disappointed when they think, well, I elected a Democrat to the White House and Democrats by a thin majority control the Senate and control the House. And the filibuster really is such a big roadblock. I mean, if we had enshrined the right to obtain an abortion in the Constitution, if we had more vigorous gun control, that's a very different country, Uh of course, but for a few people. And Representative Shu, I don't know if you have an opinion on this particular bill yet, but of course, there's also movement on gun control on the state level. And Governor Newsom just signed a new piece of legislation that would create a private right of action to enforce some of our state-based gun control laws. And this is explicitly modeled after Texas's law regarding abortion. And specifically, what it would do, obviously, is allow individuals to sue to enforce the law. My worry is that it takes federal courts out of this process, because if an individual is enforcing the law, then if you want to challenge the law, it's very difficult to get into federal court. And I don't know if you think this is a phenomenon that we're going to be seeing more of, or if you have an opinion in general on these private rights of action, whether it be for abortion, which we've talked about, or gun control. Well, I was really worried about what would happen as a result of Texas's SB8 law, which did create that private right of action and, in fact, was put together in the Texas legislature because they did not want that bill to be struck down because it was a state law. As a private law, you would not have that. You would not be able to face that. And so, yes, I actually have the same worry as you do in terms of the California state law. Nonetheless, I know why they are doing it, because we have gotten to our wit's end here, and there needs to be some way to curb this out-of-control situation of mass shootings and killings. And in fact, there hasn't been a single week in 2022 without a mass shooting. How have we come down to this kind of state of being in this country? Representative Chu, we could spend so much more time talking about these issues, but I know that obviously you have a day job and it keeps you very busy, but I don't want to let you go without asking about something that I mentioned in your introduction, which is that you were the first Chinese American woman ever in Congress. When I read that, I was startled. 2009 isn't actually that long ago. And in the last question to you, I'm just wondering, how does being a historic first shape your approach to legislating, to being a member of Congress? I feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure that there is greater equality and justice for everybody. And of course, I also know that Asian Americans have been severely disadvantaged by the laws of Congress. One of them, in fact, is the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It was one of the most discriminatory laws ever passed by Congress. It prohibited Chinese Americans from being naturalized citizens so that they could not vote. And in fact, it was not stopped until 1943. So for 60 long years, Chinese Americans were second-class citizens. Now, you observed that it's just astounding that in the year 2009, which was when I was elected, I became the first Chinese American woman elected to Congress. And 
a good question is, why did it take that long? I mean, Chinese Americans have been in this country since 1850. Well, I would say that it was because of acts like this, which disenfranchise Chinese Americans all across the nation and prevented them from becoming the full participants in this democracy that they could have been. So we are catching up, and that's why I work so hard on ensuring that we do indeed have laws that will make sure that we are equal citizens, but also you know, address the terrible issues that Asian Americans have faced, such as the two and a half years that we've had recently of the anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. That's why we got the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act passed into law. And then knowing that there is such um, ignorance about the contributions and history of Asian Americans, just last month we got an Asian Pacific American Museum study bill to get a Smithsonian Museum on Asian American history and culture to be instituted in Washington, D.C. And by doing this, we educate people that AAPI history is American history. And it's so important what you just said. And it's fascinating that so much of our systemic inequality actually starts with bad legislation. And you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And we've been talking about, I think, what you and I would agree is good legislation, trying to protect individual rights. But we know in our nation's history, it has not always been a straight line. And for that reason, we're very grateful to have representatives who are willing to fight for us, even including being arrested. And I want to remind all our listeners, you can find Representative Chu on Twitter, as I do, at Rep Judy Chu. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, etc., at Levinson Jessica. Representative Chu, thank you so much for your time for talking through these important topics. It doesn't get much weightier than abortion, gun control, and the filibuster, and why it makes such a difference in our country to have true representation. So we want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for educating the public about these really important issues that affect all of us. Thank you to our listeners, and we wish everybody a great day.